0: You are listening to Misty Radio on WMBR Cambridge, 8.8.1 FM, a show that connects MIT to the world. I'm your host, Sanaya Sampson-Hill, and on this episode, we want to show you the ways the telemedicine and energy industries are being transformed around the world. These two sectors may sound disparate, but there is actually something they have in common, and that's the goal of efficiency. Countries may have trouble catching up with the current era, a rapidly evolving technology. Telemedicine can only work if it's accessible. You can't get the care you need if you don't have the right device to receive it. In the energy sector, companies are working against time to slow or eliminate the effects of climate change. There are many in the MISTI community that are primed to address these issues, and we will be featuring them in this episode, one industry at a time. Let's start off with telemedicine in Africa where Dr. Bernard Harris Jr. is investing in telehealth innovation. Harris has had a wealth of experience related to technology, business, and medicine. He was the first African-American astronaut to walk in space, and he conducted the first telemedicine conference in space as well. He is currently Chief Executive Officer and Managing Partner at Vizalius Ventures, Inc., a venture capital firm that supports and invests in early to mid-stage healthcare technologies and companies. In a forum hosted by MIT Africa, Harris explains how his experience as a NASA astronaut helped him uncover how space-age technology can actually accelerate telehealth. He is investing in the application of new technologies in Africa to advance telehealth in the continent. Here is Dr. Bernard Harris.
1: Because it was the moon that got me involved in, in becoming an astronaut. In 1969, when I was 13 years old, I was fascinated with science and science fiction and uh, the science part led me to space science. Uh, I eventually found my way through the educational gauntlet to uh, become a medical doctor, and I guess I should say one of the other inspirations in growing up was uh, the guy, I don't know if we have any Star Trek fans, but the uh, Bones here was the ship's doctor of the Starship Enterprise, and that came out when I was a kid a long, long, long time ago, and he was probably the first person I saw practicing space medicine. But the real person was a guy on the right here called Joe Kerwin. And Joe flew on Skylab mission for 28 days and was the first American physician to travel in the space. And so that was my inspiration that led me to to NASA. Um, I uh, joined NASA in 1990. And when you join as an astronaut, you spend about two years of basic training where you learn how to fly jets, you learn how to, survive in different types of environments. You also uh, get an opportunity to learn how to fly the shuttle. Initially on Earth, we do this through what I call inside a video or simulation. And then eventually we, we train different aspects of it before we actually blast off in space. And so I had my first mission in 1993 and my second in 1995, both on the space shuttle mission. And so you'll see here on the right, Uh, This is the liftoff of Discovery, which is my second mission, which was a night launch. And you can see from the colors here, it is just incredibly beautiful uh, if you're looking at it from the outside. But I have to tell you, on the inside, it's just as beautiful, except for it can be a little exciting. Uh, As we say in the astronaut business, when the main engines light, it gets your attention. Now, let me share with you my crew, uh, this beautiful, skinny crew, and I'll, you'll know why I'll say that in a minute, uh, on Earth as we're taking our crew photo. And this shows you the two types of suits that we use in space. The launch and entry suits or the orange suits. They weigh 125 pounds. And the suits at the top are EVA suits or extra vehicular activity suits and they weigh 350 pounds. So you might wonder how is me and Michael Foles standing up at, in, uh, on earth? And that's because we have two suit technicians holding me up in the back and two holding him up in the back, actually holding the suit up so that we can take the photo.
0: Harris experienced space adaptation syndrome and some serious bodily changes while going into space, which he describes as altering his whole appearance. Eileen Collins was his crewmate and the first female commander and pilot of a space shuttle. Here's what happened to her.
1: Our faces get a little puffy. uh, Our eyes get puffy. When you take a human body from one gravity and then move it up into zero gravity, you have things like uh, loss of muscle, loss of bone, orthostatic intolerance. We have in- increased intracranial pressure. Um, we're not able to fight off illnesses like we uh, can here on earth. And of late with longer stents in space with the International Space Station, we also noticed that there are um, genetic changes that occur uh, that's been highlighted by Scott Kelly, the, the twin trials. You might know Scott as a twin, both of our astronauts. And um, they, uh, one stayed on the ground, then one in the space. And then by comparing the two, we found out that there are a lot of issues and it starts um, at the genetic level. So one of the things you might've saw was the loss of muscle, loss of bone. And what we try to do to make sure that our performance stays in, in play there is exercise. In order for us to run on the treadmill, we have a harness that's connected to bungee cords, and we're able to stay grounded, if I can use that word, as we run on the treadmill. Now we have to exercise one to two hours each day in order to decrease the ill effects of of, uh, microgravity, and that keeps us healthy for the long periods of time in which astronauts are spending in space
0: astronauts have health-related experiences in space that had to be addressed differently. But if remote care could be provided in the upper atmosphere, it can certainly be provided on the ground.
1: If it wasn't for NASA, we would not have pushed computers um, and imaging and miniaturization of electronics that resulted in defibrillators and pacemakers and robotics because the challenge of life in space caused us to innovate. And because of that innovation, we came up with all of these different things. And I would say, since we're talking about medicine, that out of all the professions, medicine is the one that I think has taken the most advantage of the technology. And I'm gonna say that with a caveat. All the advantages of the technology except for one until now and that is telemedicine telemedicine initially started as remote medicine at nasa that eventually found its way to earth so that got me into thinking about how we might use technology for delivering healthcare here on earth it was uh, this whole concept was helped in 2010 with obama but he was responsible for healthcare pushing this notion of using uh, digital health to provide healthcare to to the masses. Organizations were started. There were changes in in Medicaid and Medicare. Uh, We started something called Health 2.0. So this kind of summarizes why telemedicine, why telehealth? Well, we have shortages, not only in Africa, but in this country, uh, in the United States the costs of healthcare is rising. There is lots of demand that's going on. Consumers want the mobility to be able to access their their doctors at any locale. And then the third bullet here is just, this is simply the way in which we are now doing, doing business. So all of that sort of set the stage for me creating in 2002, Vesalius Ventures, which is a venture capital firm focused in telemedicine. Just wanted to share with you some of the companies here uh, that we are involved in. And they range from telepsychiatry to uh, uh, platforms that allow uh, folks to talk on the iPhones and iPads and on the computers, to using information technology to predict which medicines will be able to uh, be appropriate uh, for our care, say care for cancer, for example, electronic medical records, just to name a few. We have uh, looked at a number of different things from having kiosks that, that now are in a lot of the pharmaceutical uh, uh, pharmacies out there to portable devices to provide care uh, in Haiti uh, during the um, the massive earthquake. And then robotic applications are still full into telemedicine. And of course, da Vinci, those who are, uh, have had surgery lately know that we are doing surgery these days, mostly mentally invasively. And now because we have that capability, we can do that, those surgeries uh, robotically. And then lastly in this area is gaming. Uh, this is one of the, our companies where we use games to teach children how to better uh, have better nutrition and not going into it, but it's really based on a food fight. And I'll just let your imagination go with that.
0: In the forum, Harris pointed out that trends among telemedicine have accelerated because of COVID. Now is the most crucial time to provide virtual care to as many people as possible. So what are the solutions?
1: I think that there is a tremendous opportunity for Africa to utilize telemedicine in the delivery of services. And so we need to think about how we can use these devices in which people are already using to to engage them, to keep them engaged once they they, um, work with a physician or a healthcare provider can do follow-up And I think in the long run, there have been a number of studies to show that there are better outcomes when you use uh, technology.
0: This year's changing global circumstances presented challenges to making in-country internships happen for MIT students, but they also offered new opportunities for students to engage with organizations and leaders overseas. Combining Misty's network of hosts students' interest in energy, the broader energy community at MIT, and the ease of connecting internationally via remote platforms, the inaugural run of Misty Career Conversations Energy was born. This initial series focused on Denmark and India, two countries making critical strides in the movement towards green energy, but with their own methods and targets. As an emerging economy with a rapidly growing population, India has set a target of 175 gigawatts of renewable energy capacity by 2022. The current areas of focus are wind and solar energy, with a strong emphasis on building out the transmission infrastructure. Indian organizations represented in this series included Sterlite Power, Shell Research Technology Center, Tata Power Solar Systems, and Renew Power. While it faces different challenges than India, Denmark has set ambitious goals for itself to offset the progression of climate change. By 2050, Denmark aims to be fossil fuel free, and already meets half of its energy needs by renewable energy, most of that from wind power. Three companies represented Denmark during the first Misty Career Series, and this included Rambol, Orsted, and Greenlab. Each company shared their unique and innovative approaches to the energy sector and the transition to renewable energy, both within the context of their country and the world. In this segment, we'll hear excerpts from the Q&A sessions between students and representatives from Orsted and Tata Power, along with reflections from students who participated in the series.
2: Hi, my
0: name is Brinda Somjit, and I'm a
2: PhD candidate in the Department of Materials Science and Engineering. I thoroughly enjoyed this series, and I'm glad I signed up for this. While my research is focused on designing coatings to prevent the embrittlement of steel for use in hydrogen storage and transportation infrastructure, I was keen to broaden my understanding of the energy sector in general. The series enabled me to get insight into multiple topics that I'm interested in, such as what kind of research are energy companies investing in for their near-term and future goals, how companies and governments are shaping their policies and utilizing their geographic landscape to deliver energy, the role of energy storage in ensuring grid flexibility, the conversations around renewables in traditional oil and gas companies, and how companies can ensure environmental justice while delivering clean energy. The sessions left me feeling optimistic and inspired. There's so much to do and so many ways in which we can contribute to stop climate change. It's interesting to compare the overall approach of Denmark and India in fostering the energy transition. Denmark goes very far back in its climate consciousness. It's home to the world's first industrial symbiosis network in Kalundborg. This is also apparent from the number of Danish renewable energy companies, the emphasis on carbon capture and storage in its climate policy, its advanced outlook on energy storage, and focus on research and development. Then we have India, a rapidly developing country with a huge population. It's encouraging to see that India is undaunted with these challenges though, and has ambitious renewable energy goals as well. India's focus right now is to actively tap into its vast solar and wind resources and really fortify its transmission infrastructure to usher in the energy transition while ensuring continued industrialization. A key idea that the series reinforced in me is that we need an all hands on deck approach to solve the climate crisis. The sessions focused on multiple different topics such as generation, transmission, storage, policy, fundamental research. And it's clear that all of these will play a critical role in enabling the energy transition. For example, in one of the sessions, we learned that a solar plant takes just six to nine months to build in the Indian context, at least. However, building a new transmission line takes three to five years, but one can't survive without the other. So it's imperative to focus on all these different aspects to enable the renewable energy revolution. Additionally, the challenges and preferred solutions will vary greatly by geography and country. So it's important to keep this context in mind as well. I'm excited to see the role hydrogen can play in the energy transition. The attitude towards hydrogen as an energy vector has been hot and cold over the years, but it has been picking up momentum again. The sessions with GreenLab and Shell made it clear that companies and countries are taking an active interest in hydrogen. Another exciting opportunity is the role machine learning is poised to play in the digital transformation of these industries. This includes not only the identification of new materials and reaction pathways, which is what I'm more familiar with, but also the prediction of potential plant failure And optimization of plant operation.
0: Next we hear from David Bold, Lead Research and Development Specialist for Orsted Offshore, and Chris Oleth, Senior Manager of Stakeholder Engagement for the offshore wind development. He led an engaging Q&A discussion on topics such as the challenges of offshore wind farming, the goal of government in such energy projects, and stakeholder engagement
3: great well we talked a little bit about uh you know what has gone right in the in europe uh what are you know some of the thoughts about what's going on in the us and so we wanted to just open the floor and see if there were ideas thoughts uh reactions to this concept of what are these challenges and barriers to establishing offshore wind as a major power what did you hear what has been any experience you've had what are thoughts you have about ways we can work around some of these barriers, maybe based on experiences you've had.
4: Yeah. I, I had a quick, um, th- th- thank you both for talking, re- re- really appreciated it and learned a lot. Um, and a re- really, really interesting perspective. Um, I, I was gonna, um, I guess it caught my attention with the mention of kind of the, the Cape Cod wind project that didn't work out. Um, I remember listening to a podcast a while back and I, I can't recall if this was specifically, um, that project but essentially it being completely kind of um yeah paused and eventually scrapped because of such resistance from the local communities uh, and particularly people who lived along the beach didn't kind of want it yeah. um along the horizon as well as the, the cable issue was brought up even though I, I think it was buried like very far underground still people weren't weren't wow. okay with that um and it was yeah. just interesting to see it literally um a relatively small subset of the population, I'll bet one with a lot of power and influence and, and money, but still was able to stop such a um, yeah, such an innovative kind of um, project um, and, and one that also had a lot of political support. I think this was in um, so th- this was an ex- example that they were trying to apply to a similar project that um, I think was being considered by a group in Pennsylvania. Um, they actually had a lot of political support for it because this particular kind of district in Pennsylvania was traditionally kind of a coal mining district. Uh, and a lot of that was shut down, um, just kind of the way coal's going these days. And there was actually a lot of political will from a place you wouldn't expect a lot of political will for kind of renewable energy research. Um, and, and they weren't able to get it going again because of a small group of stakeholders. So, yeah, I just kind of wanted to yeah, comment on that. I think that's, as you said, the culture in the United States is still huge issue, because um, there's still not climate and kind of the impact of climate change hasn't really been internalized by a lot of people. So, thank you.
5: Yeah, exactly.
3: Yeah, that's a great observation, Sam. And I think it's interesting that, um, you know, we have a, a, a wonderfully democratic system in our country that allows for a lot of give and take and comments and pushback. Um and you know sometimes there's too much of a good thing and and I think what happens is there's not like a national energy plan that gives priority to projects like this but then we see simultaneously gas pipelines and other type of infrastructure related to fossil fuels still continuing to progress so it's really challenging when there's not national leadership on this issue
6: I think we saw very similar issues in the earlier days of offshore wind in Europe as well. So um, I think you could probably say that the world's first proper offshore wind array was the Windebu array in Denmark. And that spent a very long time going through public approval's processes. And there was a lot of pushback. But since then, I think we've become much better at anticipating what the public needs to see from the arrays we're building and how we compensate for the potential impacts. So, that's things as simple as pushing the arrays further offshore so the visual impact is lower, um, making sure that the, uh, the lighting systems are less impactful, that kind of thing, um, compensating for any changes to the fisheries environment. So, as Chris mentioned, for ha- perhaps uh, providing artificial reef solutions and making sure that fish stocks stay healthy. Uh, we've become much better at coexisting with fisheries and allowing fishing activities to. Uh, go ahead inside our arrays. And then you know, whenever we take undertake a construction project of any kind, there's obviously going to be some kind of environmental impact. And we mitigate that as much as we can, but then we also try and compensate for any damage we do. So making sure that the net impact is zero or a, potentially even there's a net gain. So uh, for instance, if there will be um an impact on a bird colony for instance, how do we provide alternative habitat to make sure that the population stays healthy? Um, so there are, there are a lot of uh, challenges that we've faced over the last, say, 10, 15 years in Europe, but we've become quite well-practiced at overcoming them and making sure that we're presenting something that's acceptable.
3: Yeah, I think any time that um, there is a something new, it's just scary. And so, you know, once we started building projects in Europe, they become more commonplace. I remember reading a story about the Brooklyn Bridge and how it was one of the most controversial projects. And it was, you know, the idea was, you know, opposed by people for, uh, you know, for a very long time before they were able to actually build it. And now if you have a view of the Brooklyn Bridge from your apartment, it is considered one of the most valuable views in all of New York City. So it's just kind of funny um, you know, or like a utility poles, you see them up and down all of all of our streets. In the beginning, they, they were an eyesore, but now we don't even realize utility poles are there because it's just kind of part of the landscape. So I think if we can get some of these projects going, we'll get, you know, you'll see the community acceptance go from 80% to 100%. People will understand the true benefits they bring
4: yeah
5: so I was really surprised that it takes so long um for the project like to kick off um so I was wondering like how could the government have like supported in- sh- uh, like in shortening the timeline and how is it different in terms of like the timeline in Europe versus in the u s
3: yeah great questions the um you know it's it's interesting because uh, there is uh this this duality between wanting to have a shortened timeline because I think of the climate imperative, really, you know, we need action now um, versus making sure that we're held to very high environmental standards. Because what we don't want to be seen as trying to cut corners or trying to unduly receive credit for things just because it's a clean energy project, we still make, have to make sure that we do it very safely and concert with environmental standards. Some of these environmental regulations in the US really just take that long to go through. Uh, When you look at the National Environmental Policy Act, the minimum uh, time to get through that process is two years. Then you need to layer all the other state and federal um, approvals onto that. So uh, major infrastructure processes do take some time. There have been streamlining efforts Uh, by the federal government, but there also needs to be more resources at the federal agency level in order for them to process the applications, which, frankly, hasn't been happening. Um, Dave, I'm not sure. I can't really speak to the timeline in Europe for permitting or consenting a project.
6: Yeah, well, I guess it's worth adding as well, that realistically, quite a lot of that timeline is our responsibility as well takes us a very long time to adequately assess a site, make sure that it's constructible, make sure that the resource there is strong enough and good enough, make sure that the grid connections are suitable all that kind of thing. So I think you mentioned, Chris, that it's roughly four to five years for a decent scale array usually. In Europe, um, there hasn't been perhaps so much focus on reducing the timeline for permitting and consenting, but I think there's been a lot of good work about rearranging the process of it. And perhaps rather than reducing the timeline, the more important bit is providing certainty to the developers as early in that process as possible that they'll be able to proceed. And that's really important to us because these are huge infrastructure projects. They're very um, expensive infrastructure projects and we can't afford to do them by ourselves. So we need to attract investment and very large scale investment. Um, The kind of scale of investment you're looking at, for instance, pension funds for they're very risk-averse investors, of course, so uh, we need to provide them really good levels of certainty very early in the process to make sure that they invest and allow us to continue. And I think that's where a lot of improvements have happened in the, the last 10 years or so, is rearranging the process so that we can get better visibility of what's coming up early in the process.
3: One term we use to describe that is called um, site control. And... In the U.S., it's very interesting because we have to, and this is, set, this is a different way of doing it than in the U.K. or in Europe, but we have to lay down um, usually millions of dollars in order to secure a lease area out in the ocean for the submerged lands before we know very much at all about what the conditions are. We haven't done any site assessments. So we are then committing very large amounts of money to areas that have a significant amount of risk perhaps associated with them from a geological perspective, uh, from wind speed perspective. So um, right now in the U.S., uh, there also is consideration to how we can kind of change the system and turn it around a little bit so that maybe the federal government, for example, would make sure that stakeholder concerns were allayed, uh, that, you know, certain area, maybe like lower, you know, fishing activity in that area, or, you know, for example, in New Jersey, our lease area starts eight miles from shore. Now, really no developer in this generation of offshore wind would build that close to shore because it's quite close and the turbines are quite large. So we wouldn't want to build eight miles. In fact, we're not building anything closer than 15 miles. So essentially now we've committed to that lease area, but we're forfeiting half of it because we won't want to build that close to shore. So it would be good if the federal government in their leasing process, and we call this marine spatial planning, could actually lay down an area that was dedicated and de-risked for us so that we don't have to go through all these machinations later.
0: What was the Career Conversation series like for students? You can hear from Naomi Lutz, a junior studying mechanical engineering. I wanna figure out what related to energy excites me the most and is something that I want to do research in and to specialize in in the future. Um, I think that the series served as a really good exposure to the global energy industry. I hadn't known a ton about different career paths and opportunities before this series. So it's really cool to hear about people's perspectives on the future of energy and to learn about what people are doing in energy. I was most surprised to learn that offshore wind is so common in Europe, while it still doesn't exist on the utility scale in the US. In general, it was awesome to hear about how much renewable energy Denmark and other European countries are using. My favorite talk was the ORISTA talk because I'm interested in wind energy and learned a lot of new things about or- offshore wind from the Orsted representatives.
5: My name is Norti Tanputri Hartono. Or you can call me Titan. I'm currently a PhD candidate in mechanical engineering. On day-to-day basis, my research focuses on discovering new photovoltaic solar cell materials which can be manufactured cheaper and more easily. So that in the future, utilities and electricity generator companies can get more power per unit cost. Hopefully. However, Working in lab and conducting experiments have created this sense of disconnection with what is actually going on in the electricity power market. So sometimes I feel that I'm missing the bigger picture. So getting connected with different companies in India and Denmark was exactly the opportunity that I was looking for. I got to learn new things every week from the discussion with different companies and it helped me to put into perspective the current energy challenge that we are all facing globally. Regarding the similarities and differences in the way each company or country is tackling the energy transition is the fact that One thing that strikes me the most is regardless of the country the government policy plays an important role in tackling the energy transition issue. The government really needs to prioritize the renewable energy by subsidizing the renewable energy power generation or helping the power transmission companies, for example, to be able to deliver cleaner power to the consumers. In addition to that, I feel something that is also really important uh, regardless of the country or company is the energy storage issue. We definitely need a better energy storage technology to be able to have 100% renewable energy and to reduce the daily or seasonal intermittency coming from wind, solar, or other renewable energy sources. There are two highlights of the series for me. The first one is when we had discussion with Orsted, a Danish company, regarding the offshore wind farms project in the east coast of the United States. For me it was really surprising. They found the right location and they were ready to get started on the project but the community was holding it back. This reminds me that for some people energy transition to renewable seems like an obvious decision, but that is actually not the case. This highlights the importance of education regarding clean power generation. Another highlight was when we had discussion with Shell Technology Center, Bangalore. I have been transitioning my research from traditional more experimentally focused research into a more data-driven research in discovering new materials. So I was really really excited that they had the same idea which is basically utilizing computation power to help tackling problems related to energy. For me I think that as mitigating climate change becomes really critical in the future, energy transition will definitely become one of very important issues out there. So pursuing opportunities in this field will definitely help me getting started to understand the challenges and possibly the solutions, as well as getting connected with the people within the field, which is very
0: valuable. Mahesh Paranjpe, CEO of Tata Power Solar Systems Limited, and Aditya Gupta, the Cluster CFO for Renewables at Tata Power, also engaged students in a lively Q&A around a variety of topics, including energy storage and the role of renewables in the transmission networks.
5: Um, I have a question, actually. Um, so thank you for very great presentation. Um, and I was wondering, uh, because... Ada seems to focus on like PV and wind, uh, and wind energy, which have like relatively like high variability and also very intermittent. Um, so I was wondering, like, how much battery storage capacity do you need to cover that uh, intermittency, and what kind of battery do you use? Thank you.
7: Yeah, actually, I should have covered that in details uh energy storage is the key to make uh, renewable energy more predictable and battery is just one option of storing the energy there are other options too uh, one is hydro pump storage units uh, which actually store the energy at a very large scale and then we can utilize it uh, during off peak or when when we do not have renewable generation but the battery size will depend on what you are trying to achieve is that backup uh, required only for one hour. Then the battery type and the battery size will be different than whether you want to use it for four or five hours. So uh, this particular aspect we are yet to test it. What type of type of battery is suited for which application Uh, though uh, there are there are experts available and uh, there are bids now coming in India as well. Uh, but soon we'll be doing our first hybrid project and we'll be doing a lot of experiments there uh, so that our, our, our understanding also improves. Uh, but today it is uh, lithium ion which is very popularly uh, used battery. Uh, and uh, those are in a different configuration uh, at that scale. We, we have even 5 megawatt uh, battery as well or 5 megawatt hour battery as well. For, for India where there is a lot of hydro potential which is also untapped because hydros typically need a lot of land, a lot of resettlement and rehabilitation issues. So large hydro projects are now difficult to come, but we have some very good potential in northern India where uh, such issues are not there. Uh, if the infrastructure is developed then probably those hydro plants, which can be pump storage units and the renewable assets somewhere in Rajasthan this is the western part of India. In that combination also can work as, as a very stable energy source.
4: Hi, thank you again for, for coming and speaking to us. Re- 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 really appreciate it. Um, yeah, I had a quick question. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the Indian government still provides a large amount of fossil fuel subsidies, um, significantly more than kind of renewable energy subsidies. In your opinion, could that be guess, a potentially um, kind of important policy moving forward when it comes to kind of incentivizing Um, whether it's kind of private owners or kind of larger companies to kind of adopt more renewable technology?
7: Uh, No, Indian government is not providing any fossil fuel subsidy. In fact, they are discouraging using fossil fuels for thermal. They are making environmental norms more and more stringent. They provide subsidy for renewable assets in in, in various forms. It need not be always uh, direct uh, uh, cash. It may be in, in terms of uh, uh, some tax benefits or in terms of some incentives in the form of uh, waiver of wheeling charges and all that. So the support from the government is to the renewable sector, not for the thermal sector. Thermal sector, they are making the norms more and more stringent. Can we get rid of thermal? The answer is no. There has to be thermal in the grid, thermal uh, uh, assets in the grid to make the grid more stable. There can't be a grid only with with renewable assets that that is not possible because the grid is not stable. What is the ideal mix? They are they are saying today that probably renewables can go maximum up to 60 percent. The remaining 40 percent has to be thermal hydro and nuclear together. We call it as we call it as rotating mass. Uh, The grid has to be supported by such rotating mass thermal hydro and renewables. Whereas these renewable, thermal, hydro, and uh, nuclear. Whereas the renewables uh, is actually a static energy source where there is no rotating mass. So, uh, so that can't give the stability to the grid.
4: Awesome, thank you.
2: Um, Actually, it 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 was very similar to what Titan had asked. I was also wondering about the storage, uh, in the sense. uh, I think that we have a lot more solar potential than. What will be the demand? So ultimately, we will need long-term storage. And my question was more along the lines of, will or does Tata Power see that lithium-ion batteries will be their potential long-term storage, or will they be looking into other forms of storage? But I guess hydro was mentioned. Um, and from what I've read, other forms of storage are still very exotic. Like there's still a lot of research that's being that needs to be clarified. Um, yeah.
7: Yeah, just to add the uh, why we actually need storage. Theoretically, we don't need storage if the world is connected by a by a common transmission network where all the solar assets are connected. Then actually, don't need a storage, right? When when India is in dark, I mean uh, in the night time, US is obviously generating, so they can supply to India and and vice versa. And if, if the entire world is connected by a grid uh you actually don't need a storage we need a storage because our load curve and our generation curve is not matching that matching can happen if we can connect the world horizontally and uh, it's not imaginary thing uh world leaders have started talking about it uh and soon we will have that soon is probably 20 years from now we will have that transmission network which will cover the entire world and then then the solar energy can flow from one part of uh, of the world to the other part without storage. The storage is only only an interim arrangement uh, till we solve that problem. If I can just add, uh, there was, uh, you know, in India the government is also attempting a different way of dealing with the intermittent nature of renewable power. Uh, so they have come out actually with a tender uh, where they are looking for a combination of renewable power with thermal power. Uh, and it's a fairly large uh, uh, bid which uh, which will be coming up soon, a 5 gigawatt build. Uh, so on one hand we have this problem where the old uh, fossil fuel based thermal plants, uh, they are not running to full capacity, the plant load factors have come down, you know what used to be 80% is today on an average 50 to 60%. So thermal plants have uh, surplus capacity available and it is the renewables which
4: are only getting added to the grid. Hi, my name is Sam Humphries and I'm a first year grad student at MIT studying operations research. Coming into Misty Energy Career Conversations, uh, I was really looking forward to just kind of getting a better feel of the energy sector and where I might be able to fit into the sector. Studying operations research, I tend to spend most of my days thinking about applied math in uh, very kind of mathematical terms. Uh, and I really missed kind of thinking about policy aspects, uh, not just of energy, but policy in general. Um, but with kind of a, a, a true interest in climate change, um, I really had this desire to uh, to not only focus about math on my day-to-day, uh, but also think about energy policy and innovative energy policy. And Misty Career Conversations provided the perfect opportunity to do this. Uh, And at the end of the day, the series was uh, immensely fulfilling in this regard. I was exposed to a great diversity of of energy stakeholders and companies that are doing really cool work. Uh, And because of this, I felt like I really got a good feel of the energy landscape and where I might be able to fit into this career uh, moving forward. In terms of similarities between uh, the companies we spoke with. The um, first thing that stands out is kind of the, the, the focus on research that each company um, really kind of made, um, made core to their identity, uh, and whether it was Orsted Offshore Wind uh, or Shell. We were exposed to just kind of the diversity of R&D projects that each energy company is, is pursuing, and this is really cool to see and really encouraging that they're uh, staying with the times, and not only staying with the times, but really looking ahead as well. Uh, and I'd say kind of in tandem with that um, that really stuck out was each company's focus on on youth uh, and really getting the opinions of, uh, of today's youth and trying to incorporate the youth and. Uh, kind of their, their 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 policy and day-to-day operations as well. Um, they really wanted to hear what we had to say, uh, listen to our questions, and I think they genuinely took this feedback, um, which is really cool to see um, that they're, they're so open to, to new ideas. Uh, in, in terms of highlights, uh, I think Orsted Offshore Wind really stuck out to me and just was a really cool company. Uh, we spoke to Dave and Chris from, uh, from Orsted and And they just provided a really cool perspective on on why there's actually not a lot of offshore wind in the united states right now uh, uh, and also why we can change this Uh, and they really opened my eyes to the opportunity of of offshore wind in the u.s and this was really exciting to see kind of this emerging market um, that that'll probably emerge in the coming years Uh, and then finally when it comes to an internship in energy um I think that the thing I'd really like to get out of that, was is kind of uh, the opportunity to, to, to see uh, what the future of, of energy policy looks like. Uh, energy is a constantly evolving field, and I think it'd just be really cool to kind of get an insider's view in, in, into where the sector is headed. Uh, I'd, I'd say in addition to that, uh, I'd, I'd love to see kind of where I fit into that future as well. I think that'd be exciting. Uh, and then finally, I think the thing that excites me most about pursuing opportunities in the energy field is just how quickly the field is evolving. Um, it's constantly adopting kind of cutting edge technology. Uh, it's constantly in the know about um, cutting edge policy and it has to combine both, both this new technology and this new policy to, to make a true impact. Uh, and I think that's just really exciting. Um, I love this series. I, I got a lot out of it and uh, I, was, I was honored to be a part of it. Thank you.
0: Moving forward, Misty and the MIT Energy Initiative will continue to provide students with opportunities to engage with leaders in the energy sector through robust programming and field trips that capitalize on the pressing issues both in the U.S. and around the world. MISTI Radio is a production of MIT International Science and Technology Initiatives. It is edited by Amina Khatoun. You can listen to us on WMBR Cambridge 88.1 FM or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. We're taking a break this holiday, so we'll see you in the new year.